I wanted to take a second to thank Triple Crown Feeds for sponsoring our podiatry clinic in April 2022. Nutrition plays such a huge role in the comfort of the hoof, the health of the wall and frog, the white line connection, and even the soul depth we see in our horses. One thing I appreciate about Triple Crown is their forage-based options that have considered sugar and starch levels for the more sensitive horses I see. I personally have my own horses on their Timothy Balance Cubes, their Stabilized Golden Ground Flax, and the Senior Gold, and have seen improvements in their hoof quality and comfort coming off of other grains. You can check out all their options at triplecrownfeed.com. Welcome to the Humble Hoof Podcast. My name is Alicia Harlov. This is a podcast for both horse owners and hoof care professionals, offering discussions into various philosophies on the health of the hoof and soundness of your horse. Please check us out on Facebook or at thehumblehoof.com. I know that most of my podcast episodes are all about factors that affect hoof health and soundness that are out of our control as hoof care providers. The day-to-day management of the horse plays such a large role in the health of the feet that I tend to focus on getting that information out to owners and professionals so they consider what they can change besides the trim or the shoeing. But one thing we as professionals do have a huge amount of control over is the movement and forces through the horse's limb. Every time we touch a foot, even if changing it by just a few millimeters, we are potentially redirecting the forces going through that limb with every step. Biomechanics tends to be a huge interest of mine, and I've watched and listened to and read many lectures from Dr. Renata Weller, an equine veterinarian and professor of biomechanics. Her research and education spans a variety of topics, and even with her incredible depth of knowledge, she has a fantastic ability to break the information down into bite-sized chunks for those of us that don't have advanced degrees in biomechanics. I reached out to Dr. Weller to see if she could give us a mini biomechanics lesson about the ways we can influence a horse's movement and what factors we should be considering in our work. So I thought it would be great to start out with you telling us how you became interested in biomechanics as a veterinarian. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. And the honest answer is <laughs> I never really understood the biomechanics papers in publications. I wanted to understand them and I always liked physics and, and I just struggled a little bit with those. And on the other hand, as a horse vet, it frustrated me to, to a certain degree that many of the horses that we, we get presented with that are lame, we, we never managed to get them back to the level of, of performance they were before. And now you might want to say, oh, well, you obviously are a rubbish horse vet, but there is some publications that back me up on this that show that the majority of horses that are presented to a veterinarian for for, for lameness investigation uh, truly, obviously, depending on, on the diagnosis, uh, many of them never go back to the level of performance. So I found that rather frustrating. And I wanted to do a PhD, so I looked around. I I couldn't see myself necessarily in a PhD spending a few years uh, on a project that involved a lot of uh, lab work and pipetting and so on. So I looked around and, yeah, it, it just appealed to me, the biomechanics world, for the clinical reasons as well as what the work actually involved. And then also you need to get along with your supervisor. And I was very lucky that Alan Wilson 
the head of the Structure Motion Lab in London, you know, said, hey, if you want a PhD, talk to me. So Ellen and I get along very well. We still do. So it, it was a combination of, yeah, clinical reasons, uh, the work that appealed and personal reasons that uh, I like the team. I like the, the supervisor. So that's how I got into biomechanics. Yeah, that's great. And honestly, I have a huge interest in biomechanics too, mostly because, you know, we're taught as hoof care providers to focus so much on the horse standing. And I want to make sure that what I'm doing to them isn't ruining how they're moving. <laughs> so I want, you know, I thought we could get a little bit into the basics of what we are looking at in biomechanics. Could you talk to us about what ground reaction forces are and uh, maybe why we are interested in them, why we should consider them in hoof care? Yeah, sure. So really, it goes back to Newton. Uh, you know, this genius guy uh, from Cambridge uh, that a few hundred years ago spoke about gravity and all sorts of other things. Well, he came up with the three Newtonian laws and, and the third Newtonian law says, basically, when two objects interact, they apply forces to each other and, and they are equal in magnitude, but opposite in direction. And that's really the, what, what the ground reaction force is. If your leg hits the ground or if a horse's leg hits the ground, it exerts a force onto said ground, but at the same time, the ground pushes back in a way. And that's the ground reaction force. So it's a force vector. So it has a, a magnitude. And it also has a direction and the direction and the magnitude, there are several factors that involve that. And we, in, in my, I, I'm a biomechanist by passion. I'm also a horse vet by passion. So in a way, a lot of the problems we see actually come back to that. It come back to the loads, those structures in, in a horse leg or also a horse back, for example, get the, the, the loads that uh, they come under. And it really, the ground reaction force is that overall force that a horse leg experiences every time it hits the ground. And I know that I actually just re-listened to one of your talks this morning that you did for the Open College of Equine Studies. You know, I, something I hear you reiterating a lot is the amount of forces that go through the limb at various gates. I was wondering if maybe you could just quickly comment that because I find it so interesting. Yeah, so the ground reaction force at its peak, so, so the ground reaction force when a horse uh, foot hits the ground, it changes the direction and magnitude as long as it's on the ground. And let's talk a little bit for simplicity sake, let's talk about the peak force. And the, the peak force depends on the mass of the horse. So how much your horse, uh, well, I guess how fat your horse is. <laughs> And that sadly also applies to people. And it also depends on speed in any given gait. It also is influenced by the gait. And if we look at how it changes between gaits, I, I find it super impressive what a horse leg has to cope with. So even in a normal walk, you know, it, it's a front leg of a horse has to cope with half the horse's body weight, really. And, and that's... You know, if you if you look at a 500 kilogram horse for the sake of uh, simplicity, that's already 250 kilos. So that, that's already quite a substantial force that results in. And as we go further in, in trot, it's one times 
the body weight of the horse. And then as we go up in gallop, uh, that can go up to two and a half times. And I, I mean, I, I usually compare that to a, a car. So basically a middle-sized car crashes down uh, on a horse's leg every time it, it hits the ground, which I think it's very impressive for a horse leg to cope with if you look at the, the, size, of, the size of it. Right. I know. I, I mean, I think I've heard you mention that it's like a, a miracle of bioengineering, basically. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and the other thing I've heard you talk about is a moment arm. And I was wondering if you can kind of define that in terms of a horse's limb. Okay, I'll try. Um, so a moment, uh, this is biomechanical speak for rotational force. So if you look at a horse leg, and I, I give you this as a homework. Try build a horse leg out of Lego blocks. This is extremely difficult. And the reason this is extremely difficult is because the horse leg has this fatlock joint, right? Uh, so all at once in the leg, you have this weird angled joint. So if you try to build this out of Lego blocks and try to stand this up, you have a hard time doing so. The reason a horse leg doesn't collapse or a whole horse doesn't collapse is that weird fatlock joint configuration is supported by the flexor structures on the backside of the leg. So you have three structures there that are elastic in nature. So you have the suspensory ligament and the deep and the superficial digital flexor tendon, and they hold that fatlock angle up. So they support that this joint is configured at an angle. They also contribute to elastic recoil. So every time the horse leg hits the ground, the mass of the horse compresses the leg and the angle of the fatlock joint changes. And as I said, if you wouldn't have those structures, the flexor structures at the back of the leg, that leg would simply collapse. It obviously doesn't do that. Now, what happens in that process is that those tendons, and for the sake of this, the, the suspensory ligament acts like a tendon, they get stretched. And when they get stretched, they store elastic energy. And when the horse leg leaves the ground again, that elastic energy is released and helps the horse to move in an extremely energy efficient manner. You have to remember where the horse comes from. It comes from, uh, from its evolution. It comes from an area where food was scarce and horses had to balance between traveling quite, quite big distances to get to enough grass to support itself. So it was an evolutionary advantage to locomote uh, in a very efficient manner. And it has developed several anatomical mechanisms to be able to do so. And one of those is this pogo stick-like leg where the tendons help to save energy through elastic recoil. Now, what happens is that each of those tendons has leverage around the joints, each joint the coffin joint, the fatlock joint, the carpal joint, you name it. On the other side of the leg, so that's on the back side of the leg, you have the tendons and their moment arms. So the moment arms are the levers those tendons have. So 
from a physics point speaking, there the distance between the center of rotation of the joint and the tendon. So that, that's what's happening on the backside of the leg. On the front side of the leg, you have the ground reaction force vector going up. So uh, it comes into uh, the, the foot and then it travels up and it's on the front side of the, of the joints. So let, let's again look at peak force to make it a little bit easier. And at each joint, it is also located at a certain distance to the center of rotation of the joint. And that's, again, a lever it has at each joint. So, again, we have a force, the ground reaction force, and we have the lever, which is the distance between the ground reaction force vector and the center of rotation of the joints. And that's what's called the moment arm. So, you, you, you could also call it the, the lever arm if you want. It's just in biomechanics language, it, it's called the moment arm. Yeah, and... and- So obviously there's a lot going on when a horse moves and there's a lot that's working together and also working against the horse. So, you know, I'm a hoof care provider and my first thought is what I'm doing to the horse's feet and how it's affecting that. So how much influence can we have as hoof care providers in a horse's movement or biomechanics? Ah, loads. And even more importantly, you are vital in in terms of preventative measures. And uh, if it's okay, if we could talk a little bit about that in in a second. But the effect you have lies in the fact that as hoof care providers, you can change where the ground reaction force enters the leg. And this point where it enters the leg, it's called point of zero moment or point of force application. And whatever you do to the foot, you will move that point. So you carry actually a huge responsibility here. So if you shorten the toe, you are moving that point where the ground reaction force enters the leg towards the back of the leg. If the toe lengthens, like for example, through through growth, then you're moving that point of zero moment forward And what this then has as an effect is it changes the moment arm at each joint. So it changes the leverage the ground reaction force vector has or the ground reaction force has at at the level of each joint. Now, if you consider that what you do to the front of the leg has an effect on the back of the leg, you are influencing with what you do to the foot you are influencing what happens to the load distribution in the leg. So if you increase the leverage of the ground reaction force, the tendons on the backside of the leg who have to hold up that leg, that's their job, they have to work harder in a way. So if you increase the ground reaction force, the uh, tendons on the back of the leg have to make up for that. And because their moment arm can't be changed. Their moment arm is determined by anatomy at the fetlock joint by the proximal sesamoid bone and at the coffin joint level by the navicular bone. What has to change is the force in the tendons. So if you increase the ground reaction force effect on the front side of the leg, the force in the tendon on the back side of the leg goes up. 
Now, those flexor structure have a very intimate relationship to the sesamoid bones. They glide over them. And if you increase the force in the tendons, what happens is the pressure they exert on those sesamoid bones increases as well. And that's obviously, we all know that the whole navicular apparatus on, on the backside of the horse's foot operates at very precarious safety levels. So if we do that, then we not only put the deep digital flexor tendon at risk, we are also increasing the, the pressure on the navicular bone, on the interlaying navicular bursa. So we are putting them under pressure. So that's not good news. And obviously also the opposite holds true. So you shorten the toe, you decrease the leverage, the moment arm of the ground reaction force, and you're decreasing the forces in the tendon on the back of the leg. So your influence is huge. And if you think, yeah, well, well, but we are only talking, you know, what, uh, half a centimeter or a centimeter, well, that's biomechanics for you. So, you know, your half a centimeter or centimeter on, on the foot has obviously a, a bigger effect at the level of the fatlock joint, for example. So don't you dare underestimate the effect you have with the work you do. So then I guess my follow-up question to that is, you know, do we always want to be like chasing after a short toe? Like, do we always want to be shortening this toe so that we're, you know, decreasing those forces? Or are there times where that's a bad idea? Well, it, it's always a balance, right? It's multifactorial. So you, you need to you need to allow the whole some movement as well. Well, A, you, you have to work with the material you have. So you can't shorten the toe beyond a certain level. You need to work with the whole material that is there. You also need to think what movement does the horse need to, need to do. You don't want to cramp the horse's style. So it's a fine line to walk. But if in doubt, my advice would be, and especially if you have a horse that's already, if you have an especially uh, high-level athletes and, uh, you, you know, it's our job to keep them, keep them going, I would always try to get away with the shortest toe I can while allowing the horse to still to still perform. So it's a fine line to walk and, and every horse is different. Every horse is an individual. Uh, so yeah, you need to find that sweet spot for every horse. Yeah. And uh, I had watched a talk that you did for the International Hoof Care Summit about um, preventing, well, I, I think you were talking about why soft tissue injuries occur. And I was wondering if you had any tips or advice on preventing soft tissue injuries in horses, either for the owner or for their hoof care provider. Yeah, sure. So I think the first step is for everyone, uh, all, you know, all allied professions, as well as horse owners to understand how orthopedic problems come to pass in horses or in, in any athlete, you know, human athletes as well as animal athletes. So it's the same for, for dogs as well. The majority of orthopedic injuries are degenerative in nature. And we do see traumatic injuries. Of course, you know, if there is a really bad luck and, and there is a fall or or another uh, traumatic event, of course, we see traumatic injuries as well. But the majority of orthopedic problems 
come from degeneration. And degeneration happens with age. Uh, that's why usually uh, as you get older, the, the uh, orthopedic problems get a little bit more and it also takes longer to heal. But it also comes from usage. So the majority of problems are wear and tear problems where usually our body copes very well. It's an efficient machine in that respect. Uh, so you, you go uh, go for a run and, you know, some of the tendon fibrils may crack, but it doesn't really matter because there's a million other ones and the body repairs the cracked ones. Say, same for other, same for bones and, and so on. So it's our bodies, the metabolism is constantly working to provide us what we need and to repair damage and to strengthen structures as well if, if we, we put them under more load. Now, what happens is if you do one movement over and over and over again, uh, you may run the risk that you exceed the repair capacity of the body. And then what happens is that your little your little cracks in the bone or your little little uh, fibril ruptures, they go bigger and bigger and weaken the structure. And your body is trying to repair it but can't anymore because you exceed the damage exceeds the repair capacity. And your damage gets bigger and bigger, your structure gets weaker and weaker. And then you are entering this vicious cycle where because you have less functional material, your, your uh, remaining healthy material has to cope with more because you have less functional material. And then they crack as well because they now are all at once come under under bigger loads that they can't cope with. The body goes into meltdown and and a whole load of inflammatory responses will also contribute to the whole cycle. So the whole system can't cope anymore. Now, obviously, you don't want to get to that stage. And a few training principles might help with that. Uh, So, for example... A, you should never push an individual beyond its capacity. And a good trainer, a really, really good trainer will know where the capacity limit is. Uh, That's one training principle. I think that's a big one. The second thing is cross-training. So rather than, you know, using the same movement again and again and again and again, think about how you can increase fitness with different movement that has a, results in a different loading pattern to the leg. And hey, I know if you have a high level performing or even a medium level or low level performing horse, it doesn't really matter. If you have fun with your horse in certain exercises, you want to do them again and again and again. But think a little bit about it. You, you, you know, how often do you have to do a one movement to get to a level of excellence? And then get away with the least reps of that movement. And and this is where, you know, a lot of human sports people, even if they are runners, they will use cycling for cross-training or vice versa, uh, because that loads the leg differently. And, And the same principle applies to horses as well. So repetitive movement, yes, we have to do it. Obviously, for example, a dressage horse has to develop the skills to be able to do it. But think a little bit about how often do I have to practice that PF really per week? 
And yes, it's fun, but you know, think a little bit about, and I don't want to single out dressage people. So please dressage people, forgive me here. Uh, it, it, it holds true for every other discipline as well. Yeah. And I think that's all great. And obviously involving a trainer and, and like you were saying, working through that repetitive motion, just like as little as necessary, sounds like a, a great idea. Is there anything that owners should be looking for in their horse's movement or feeling in their horse's movement to know if their horse is headed down, you know, a bad path? You, you know, I, I always wanted to do a study to look whether the owner's backside is more sensitive to changes in movement and would be able to detect it earlier than the eyesight of a vet. Uh, one of these days I'm going to do that study. Trust your own judgment. If you think something is wrong with the horse, then in all likelihood, there is something wrong with the horse. Uh, even if it's not yet, you know, our eye brain combination are limited into how much, for example, asymmetry we can do, we, we can perceive. Uh, we, I'm a big fan of technology. Uh, I think people have listened to me before know that. I rely heavily on sensor technology to detect issues in, in animals as early as possible, horses, cows, dogs, you name it. But equally, honestly, horse owners out there, trust your judgment. Also, I think vets are always a little bit at a disadvantage because we only ever see the, the horses when something is obviously wrong in a way. So also... Uh, I would say any hoof care provider, manual therapist to see the horse more regular than vets rely on their judgment as well. And yeah, at the end of the day, probably the most important thing is if you think there is something wrong, we need to intervene. Because as I said, right at the beginning of this, once a problem is well established and has entered that vicious cycle, the like the prognosis goes down. So the earlier we can catch those horses, so so don't wait to to ring your vet, uh, you know, till the, your horse is on three legs. Really get help early and and trust your own judgment. Trust the judgment of the people who help you look after your horse. So I guess that would be my my take home message: intervene early. Yeah, and that's great. I think, you know, everything you've said has been super helpful. And, you know, I feel like you got a lot of the information out there and were, was really clear. So thank you for being willing to answer all these questions and, and talking to me today. Yeah, thanks for giving me the opportunity. And yeah, if anyone has any questions, don't hesitate to reach out to me. And hey, at the end of the day, horses are brilliant, aren't they? They, they my, I look at my horses, I don't get to ride that often anymore. But just looking at them makes me happy. So let's keep them happy, I think. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. All right, great. Well, thank you so much. I'll let you get on with the rest of your day, but thank you again so much. This was great. Yep, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. I always say that I'm slightly more hoof-obsessed than the average person, and chances are, if you're listening to a hoof care podcast, you are too. So we should probably be friends. Feel free to find me on Facebook or email me at thehumblehoof at gmail.com.